Hello, and welcome to Fireside with the VC. My name is Andrew Romans, and today we're talking about Africa. We are very lucky to have Marsha Wolf with us. Marsha is the founder of Lofty VC, which is a top three venture capital firm focused on investing in seed, early stage tech startups in sub-Saharan Africa. Marsha was very successful in business before becoming a venture capitalist. She's going to talk to us about how challenging and hard it was raising her first fund, as well as funds two and three, and also about the challenges and opportunities of investing in Africa-based startups. Um, Marsha's been shattering records as a woman fundpreneur, founder of a venture firm. She was kind enough to be a guest speaker at Chapman University, where I teach a class in beautiful Southern California. At the last minute, things changed and we're both sadly in hotel rooms, uh, very late at night, speaking to the students who are in class, mostly. Um, and if you stick around to the end, you'll hear questions from our students, from Marsha. So with that, let's jump into the episode. It's relationships. It's relationship-based. It's all about the entrepreneur. At that stage, at seed stage, it's all about the entrepreneur. When, when a startup is pitching you or you're pitching the LP of why this market matters, where are the people? What's GDP per capita? What's the uh, supply demand? Or, or none of that fits in. <laughs> okay, so you want- I'm what, definitely what making you laugh. Are, <laughs> what our priorities are, um, are are all are obviously market-based, but but you start with the entrepreneur because the entrepreneur has to know the market better than you do, right? Um, it's their company. <clears throat> so if they know um, a big problem, um, and Americans actually won't know a lot of those big problems, they know a big problem and they have loved ones that are suffering on a daily basis in a major way. And they have prepared themselves to um, reach <clears throat> global expertise in <coughs> in whatever um, they, they were with Goldman, they have their PhD, they have they've got their MD, whatever, and they are committed to spending their life solving this problem, and it's a big problem for a lot of people, <laughs> and they are using a tech innovation so that it can ramp up rapidly at a low burn rate. So yes, big market does matter. And it is easier to start in, in a country like Nigeria, which at that time was almost 200 million. Now it's like 210. Um, and so they all kind of share the same problem, same um, currency and all that. So like there's certain like copycat um, business models for startups to invest in. But then there's the other side, which I think it was very much Africa, which is they're going to leapfrog over how the Western countries developed and go from dial up internet with 96 baud internet modems that slowly get to 256k down, that slowly get to fiber to the home. They're going to immediately go to mobile. So they're immediately going to be mobile first, and there will be no fixed internet, and they're booking mortgages from the back of a moped. And it's like 89% conversion rates on mobiles as opposed to like they're not geniuses of the real estate it was just like they were in so much a traffic jam and it was a necessity to book that vacation or mortgage on on a mobile phone so there's they solve unique problems that exist in that archipelago nation or whatever specific problems that we do not have in the u.s and then 
you start to see, oh my God, I could take that and sell that in Long Island. Exactly. Because who doesn't want lower cost healthcare? Who doesn't want more responsive banking? Who, who wants to spend days setting up a bank account in the US? I had to do that last year instead of just minutes on, on uh, mobile banking. I mean, so, so you, you, I knew that once they nailed it in an in a, uh, economy that couldn't afford something more expensive, where it had to be easy, and it had to be less expensive, and it had to solve a big problem, that it'd immediately go, go global. What's happening is that, they're, um, that the African entrepreneurs are actually leading um, a, a decade ahead on mobile phone innovations. Um, I, I, I got introduced to all kinds of things over the past 20 years um, because I was in Africa um, first. I, you know, I'd come home and, and, and use my SMS messaging and, and nobody here knew what it was. Um, I use WhatsApp every day. Nobody here knows what it is. I'm nagging the bankers saying, you're going to be out on the street if you can't figure out how to do um, digital banking. And they say, oh, we've got an online portal to our old-fashioned bank accounts. No, no, you guys don't even know what's going to hit you because I've been investing in these things and they're changing the world and you're way behind. Now, the Africans aren't copying something and just bringing it in like a windmill. They're creating something new and different that is just it's leapfrogging what the, what the United States is accustomed to. Okay, and let's talk... Um, Marsha, about the challenges, like in, in, I would argue that if I invest in a company in Silicon Valley, that I can effortlessly make a list of 100 VCs that I have a personal relationship with to introduce the founder to, to fund their next round. Whereas in Africa, it might be a short list of people that you can introduce to. Now that's, that's a challenge, but at the end, on the other hand, Maybe that's an opportunity for you. How do you feel about that? Or what does that reality look like for you? <clears throat> well, foreign investors create problems for um, African investors. So don't expect the Africans to fall all over themselves in order to get it because they, they come with two problems. Um, one is they don't understand the problem that the African entrepreneur is trying to solve, number one. And number two, often they... Uh, in Africa, they have been coming in from a background in either nonprofits, um, which is grant funding, and that comes with a whole slew of problems, um, or, or government funding, you know, government related development funding, which comes with a whole lot of debt related term and terms that are terrible, or they're private equity backed, um, because that's where the big money is. And so you graduate from Wharton, you go work for, um, for Blackstone, BlackRock, whatever, and, um, and then you try to come back in downstream, or I guess it'd be upstream, into startups in Africa. Well, but you have never built your own company from scratch well, then you're not going to be much good to those entrepreneurs. You're going to be imposing all kinds of things they're not ready for. So that's why we You'll be learned... wrong most of the time with your banging your right. fist on the table opinions. Pardon? You'll be wrong most of the time as you bang your fist on the table with your opinion. That's exactly right. You, the, the, most, the most successful investors in Africa who are foreign 
based like me um, are are humble. We've learned to be humble. And the reason why is if we're good at investing, we make sure that our, that our entrepreneur knows more about this than we do. Our entrepreneur has a better network than we do. Yes, my, I, I felt like, wow, these people are doing so much. They're doing everything they can. The least I can do is connect them to resources. But my God, I have, I have failed miserably in trying to get the people that you may be able to get <laughs> um, to, to step out and to take a risk. And, um, and so we've really built this, this second venture capital fund that we call Fund 3 because the first was Angel. The second one was, I, I backed it and then we had a couple, a handful of people join me. And then this time where we've got, um, we've got 90 some African professionals who used to run, you know, Accenture or some of the big banks or, um, you know, that sort of thing. They're, they're the investors and they understand the problems that these entrepreneurs are solving. So when you, they come in as, or they've already built their own businesses. Uh, okay. So I think I was differentiating between foreign investors who don't understand the market versus local Africans who have gotten a global expertise um, and, and um, excellence and then returned home. And um, every one of them seemed to be passionate about creating jobs and backing startups. But Every single development corporation out there or uh, entity that's related to nonprofits or and related to government um, or private equity have been aiming at things that are either really poorest of the poor grant funding, which never, never is, it, it seems to be scalable or, or um, um, how can I say, self-sufficient uh, self or um, or they're else, or else they're coming in at. Um, they they insist on their criteria being entities that are already profitable. Nobody's been aiming at, at what the, the where the biggest opportunity was, and that's the these the entrepreneurs that have have gotten global expertise and come back home to solve a problem. They've they, their loved ones think they're crazy because they left you know a, a big corporate job in America or the UK become entrepreneurs and then LPs or they become or they keep working at their professional job and become angel investors and then so work into the ones it. that we have are keeping their corporate jobs and investing or they've introduced us to their friends back in Lagos that are just like real estate developers I mean, our, our, our economy is doing, you know, all the negative things. Why would they not back out? <laughs> I mean, right. How, well, what does the exit market look like in your world? Okay. Well, you know, Paystack exited to Stripe um, 200 million in a four-year-old venture. So that's, that's the acquisition side. Um, and we've been able to exit um, through, um, through follow-on rounds. Like I said, most of the money is sitting out there at PE stage. So when you get in at seed stage, well, our angels get in pre-seed. And so they already true up the ventures for us so that when we get, we, we often get into seed stage ventures that we already know for a few years. And those seed stages, um, by the time we're, by the time they get to BC round, we're sitting at eight, 10, 12 X. We actually, we just closed a fund where we exited, we exited after a six month hold. Um, and it was 10, 12, it's in my slide, 10, 12 X. 
so that uh, before we even close well, this third venture fund. You're exiting on the secondary market with markups. That's one thing. And then you're That's selling to American M&A buyers. No, we're not. Oh, oh, <laughs> uh, Paystack did sell to Stripe. We weren't into in that one, but Stripe was one of the um, seed stage investors in Paystack in the first place. So they grew up together. Okay, and and um, what do you think cash on cash multiples look like for investors at your stage, for fund wide? Fund wide. Well, I can show you on my slides. <laughs> So the first fund we're uh, we're sitting at four point six fund wide, and we still have three or four more to exit out of the seven total, six or seven total. Um, that's the first venture fund. Um, the angel fund, I, I I don't have the details. It is in that slide that I'll show you. <laughs> and then this the um, this this uh, fund that we just closed in January. It was supposed to be 10 million fund, but we um, actually got 14 million. And then we got 2 million from a $200,000 investment. So that gave us 16 million to recycled. invest already. Recycled. Yeah, already. because And that was before the fund even closed. Um, I've never heard of such a thing. Have you? <laughs> I've recycled, um, but yeah. And, and, and yeah, those are, it, it, it's just like, because there's because of our early it's it's once one success feeds on another because of our early successes there um the money that's been sitting on the sidelines have been coming in and we were terrified at first because that that money was just you know it's so big compared to the tiny markets we talk about how it, africa's market's exploding but when you put it into the context of global tech startups it's like four percent of global global tech startup investments or something so there's a lot of money out there that could come in and just flood it too fast and throw the the valuations way out of out of the range of local african angel investors or venture capitalists like we are i mean i'm the only non-african running this fund and um one of the few non-african investors um and all of our founders are african founders um so so we worried about that um for this last fund but what happened was that those investors that are willing to come in early like this um global investors um, they're smart enough to know that they should only invest alongside of local investors. So they require they they work out some deal with the entrepreneurs. Say, yeah, we like you. Yeah, we like what you're doing. We want to put in, you know, ten million dollars into your seed fund or what? I mean, your seed stage. Um, but we don't know we don't know your markets and stuff. So we we want you to find a legitimate African venture capital team that will come in alongside of us. And so they come to us and they, or, or, or the smart investors will send them to us. And so we yeah. say, well, yeah, we want in, but we have to get in a discount because this is ridiculous compared to what you and I both know you're really worth. You know? <laughs> well, well so, I want to know about that. So, so, you know, in ancient times, a startup was worth a million dollars at the first time that they raised money. So your pre-money was a million. Then it was three million. That, well, okay, that, let me let me cut through that and say okay, then it's ten. Get now million, we're talking twelve or seven. A million 70. valuation for having a team, a million uh, and another million for having a good market, and you get you get a million for your traction and a million for your IP. So you start off maybe thinking you're worth four million, something like that, before you start. So, so really sub-Saharan sub African company with 
team no revenue? Like, like give me some numbers. That's right, no revenue. Angel investors, of course, um, first, that's pre-seed. Seed stage, there is some revenue. It may just be, you know, 50 or 100 or 500,000 a year, but it's early days. It's just, it, just think Y Combinator. That's where we come in. We come in there, right? Right when they get their first revenues and they've got a team and they've got a plan. So what do you think the valuation would be in the Valley compared to Nigeria? Well, because Y Combinator has done such an excellent job of, of, even in the playing field for global entrepreneurs, whether you're in Poland or Russia or Czechoslovakia or Ghana, um, it's, it's really helped keep that pretty level as long as they've got the acumen to apply online to Y Combinator. Yeah. Um, and if their founders are astute and malleable, they've got a shot. So it, it's not as out of whack as you might think. I was going to say, um, I try not to miss a YC demo day and they, they do have African entrepreneurs and they do not appear to be on sale. Why would they? If they can, if somebody's willing to pay them three times more than they thought they would, <laughs> you know, higher valuation, why not? Right. So, so these, but these investors, like I said, they're, they're, they're pretty astute and they say, well, we don't want the next round to be a down round. So if you're really not ready for it, we want to know. And that's why they want local investors to come in and rationalize the, um, the valuations. And that's what we've been doing. So we've been very fortunate um, in this, this uh, second venture capital fund that we put together um, that we, we already have, we, we're already sitting at about 2X on the fund and we just closed in January. We've got a realized exit um, that, like I said, of $2 million and it was on a $10 million fund. So that's pretty good already, right? Yeah. So next time we're shooting for a lot, a lot bigger fund. It's, it's, it's risk because, um, but it's getting less. It, it, it is getting closer. The polls are getting a lot. They used to be really a problem. Um, I saw so many corporations make big mistakes by thinking just because the color um, yep. matches, that the but the culture may be totally different. Um, so it, 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 it here again, there's this humility, this um, reality. You have to face reality. And um, but I, over the last couple of years, I've become aware that it's happening. It's coming together much, and it's just beautiful when it does. So my team does have the, the combination on it now. I'm, you know, 10 years ago, it was not happening. Any government matching like? They are so difficult to work with because they've, you know, okay, so we're cowboys, right? They, and these businesses aren't formalized yet. They're not profitable. They don't have their governance all worked out. So you've got, you've got to work with that and work toward, I mean, Silicon Valley knows how this goes. You start informal you formalize as you've got the money and the time and the personnel to do it. You don't have that at the beginning. So you can't, you can't come in with all this red tape when the company doesn't even have a treasurer or a decent CFO yet. So th that's why, I mean, that's really the answer to my question. So they won't just leave years. the startup alone and just give you matching? Like you raise, you raise 12, they match you with 12? That would be alone? so good. That would be so perfect. 
but no, they don't do that yet. <laughs> you know, I, I can, I can try, thing. we can try together to tell them this is what they did in Israel. This is what they did in Germany. This is what they did in France. Yes. This, is it, this is what they did in the UK. Yeah. And I can introduce you to the CEO of every one of them. Like I and can. European, that'd be fantastic. So European it would help you to feel like you need a reference. Yeah, the right. Government needs to cover its ass. The world is small. That's right. But when you're in the flow, you're in the flow. <laughs> and you are, obviously. So congratulations. So um, I had no idea uh, most of my life that I would ever end up being the venture capitalist and um, you know, with a team that's, that's um, among the top three investors on the continent um, in terms of deal number of deals. Um, but I started um, in, in um, being raised as a military brat. <laughs> And so um, there, that gave me a really broad um, exposure to what it feels like to be a global citizen instead of a very limited community feel. Marsha, where were you born? What were some of the countries your family had? Well, when I was born, it was in, within the Arctic Circle. My father was um, on loan to an Air Force uh, base that was trying to, that was building the, um, the strategic defense system. And um, so my mother was living in a, um, the family was living in an Airstream trailer and my mother had to um, chisel the sheets away from the edge in, or, uh, 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 in order to change them, to get the ice off. <laughs> and By then, way, um, I, I was born on a U.S. naval base in Hayama Kanagawa, Japan. No kidding. And my brother I was, was born in Encinitas, not far from where our students are, where you and I should be together right now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so I, I, you know, I do think that, that I, I don't know if you've seen any of the, um, um, research done on this, but those of us born in the military do have more of a mission mentality. And I think people like you and I um, had have more of the, like I said, the global citizen feel for our community. Um, because when I was, you know, I've got a picture of myself two years old sitting on my haunches with a bunch of Chinese people who, <laughs> um, because my dad was helping the, um, the, what do you call it, uh, Chiang Kai-shek's army um, figure out things like road building and welding um, in Taiwan for most at the time. And then I spent five, over five years growing up in Germany. So meantime, I was crisscrossing the United States by car and looking around saying, why is this, this um, city here? And why is it, why is there no city here? You know, so you just ask a lot of questions when you're, in, you're raised in a diverse um, situation. Um, and some recent research has shown that those of us that have had to live and adapt um, in other cultures, um, we are more creative <laughs> about our solutions and problem solving. Um, and, and so that carries over into my work, um, Andrew, because I look for people who have had international exposure um, because they are more creative and they are more um, global in their problem solving and in their community perspective. So you don't see our Loft Inc. Um, team investing in very many Africans that have never left their homeland. And uh, we really avoid um, expats uh, as founders, unless they have really, um, you know, 
kind of cross that bridge <laughs> to become um, more of a local um, and, def and to have a heavy, heavy uh, influence on their teams. It's, a, it's actually a risk reduction strategy as an, as an investor. So what I did was I held a salon dinner for a lot of people who were interested in projects in Africa, see what we can build as a network and collaboration. By that time, I'd already spent decades working with international students and, uh, and, and, and a decade or more um, getting to know Africa and the business environment and the um, venture capital situation and acceleration um, ecosystems in South Africa. But I had been um, pulled into speaking at, at American business schools across the country. And then the African diaspora who were studying there, who were alumni of those, were starting to pull me into their projects back home. So <clears throat> um, I had been a keynote speaker for the um, Kenyan uh, group for a couple of years. And at one point, uh, so at the point of this, um, this dinner, um, a Kenyan gal brought, who was studying to, for her PhD in Texas, brought her former boyfriend um, from Nigeria. They had been studying together to my, my salon dinner. And we struck up, um, uh, a, a mutual, we recognized that we had mutual intentions and goals in building um, uh, some sort of investment opportunity to um, facilitate African entrepreneurs who were innovative, tech-based, rapid growth, and job creation. Okay. And did you, did you have an anchor LP going into this? Or that would be me. Um, I had helped build <coughs> um, a, an oil and gas company. And um, then uh, I, I left that in order to focus on my African work. Um, and I wasn't sure. So I had been doing angel investing in impact investing, both in the United States and Africa for about 10 years at this point. So, so you, did you generate wealth from your oil and gas business and that allowed you to consider making some opportunistic, but perhaps philanthropic impact investments? That's right. Yeah. Um, so I had, I built three unicorns um, or helped build them uh, basically before I really established the venture fund for Africa. They were Pioneer Natural Resources, um, Parsley Energy, and uh, Teladoc, um, a health uh, tech um, company in the United States. Those exits helped me um, be able to consider. So I started investing in Africa initially um, as, um, how can I say this? Um, it's sort of both as angel investor and also in public markets. And neither of those were going particularly well for me. And I knew why I needed, I needed more of a network. Um, so I was always trying to, you know, I was always digging deeper and expanding my networks to make and, and just learning it takes so long, so much energy, so much time to learn just the answers to, well, why didn't companies come back into South Africa after apartheid? You know, why, 
why haven't the African diaspora come back the way that the Chinese and Indian diaspora become? Just asking question after question and doing lots and lots of research until you feel like you've got the answers. And then you start working with the, I mean, it, it, basically I knew that I needed, okay, I started, to, I actually tried to launch my first venture capital fund in 2004. I had um, a VC that was, uh, I, had, I had two partners with me. Um, one was with the IFC at the time and the other was with Wharton and also with a, a San, a Silicon Valley based biotech. And the three of us were going to be the core group of this fund. And so I had spent seven years building um, the networks in order to have a portfolio that was health innovations that were uh, by Africa for Africa. And I started bringing those, that uh, portfolio around in, to- in Russia, the, Can you define yeah. Africa? Do you mean Sub-Saharan Africa or does that include MENA? No, it was just Sub-Saharan Africa at the Sub time. My yeah, my entrepreneurs were, were mainly um, Kenyan and um, Nigerian and Ghanaian. And oh, okay. South African oh. and South African, yeah. All right, so Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was those were my my entrepreneurs. So anyway, I didn't expect anyone to back a blind pool like a, a venture fund might normally um, be launched with, um, because I knew we it was it, there was just too many new new components to to this endeavor, right? So instead, I, I had the, um, the portfolio and you know, qualified partners, and I went around trying to raise capital. I, I had studied the first venture capital fund that was a biotech fund for this niche. I mean, yeah, there's, there were, there's always been lots of money for the later stage ventures, you know, manufacturers that were wanting to ramp up from 50 million a year to 100 million dollar a year kind of projects, but that's not what I was interested in. I was interested in innovation-based ventures that could ramp up to a billion dollars in, you know, <laughs> a couple of years. Um, and I, I knew that, you know, there, there had to be an opportunity for that. So I went around and, and, um, and knocked on doors and, and everybody thought I was crazy. Um, Proparco, um, the CDC in London, uh, Commonwealth Development Corporation, and uh, in fact, it, they kept ignoring me and I finally got somebody on the phone and, and I said, what do you think of our portfolio? And he said, well, we just don't think that you'll ever find uh, enough deal flow to do this. I said, then, then you've oh, not even no, opened- Oh, no, that is so wrong. You, but listen to this, Andrew. I said, I know now that you have not even opened the deck that I left with you because I, uh -huh. had, I had the portfolio in there. I mean, they, they should have been embarrassed and they should have been fired, but instead they've been- They've been, uh, what do you call it when they get promoted? It's ridiculous. So anyway, there's a lot of frustration there in, in the, in the um, hypocrisy um, of listening. For 10 years, I listened to people, IFC and OPIC and CDC and Proparca saying, you know, we've got money allocated for African projects and ventures, but we don't, we don't have any deal flow that suits our, our purposes. Well, that's because you want something that's already profitable. How are they ever supposed to get profitable without anybody who's going to invest early, right? So <clears throat> back now, now okay, of course we're in my my um, living room, <clears throat> chatting with these other Africans that I've mentioned, two thousand nine, and what I'm realizing is um, this group is really is really grounded. You know, they're from there. 
they want to return there, they're here getting their advanced degrees, etc. So what, what Lofty Inc. started doing right after that, um, Michael Oluwambigmi, <laughs> I still stumble over his last name, um, established the first Lofty Inc. entity that would become the sort of the umbrella under which the sister companies or brother companies would all be, be built. And um, under that umbrella, they established the Winnovation Hub accelerators or a tech hub it's called a tech hub and they joined forces with some of my other colleagues and friends um, the uganda-based hive collab and the nairobi-based ihub which is eric hersman and his team um, and in kampala it was um, teddy rouge and his team and <clears throat> the three of them and some other um, core groups tech hubs established um, afro labs to become a um, um, you know best practices entity that was pan-african meanwhile back in lagos they they had been tutoring um, entrepreneurs young young tech entrepreneurs um, in in how to start a company and, um, you know, the first thing they realized was these are a bunch of cats and we've got to group them into teams. So there was the team building and, and MIT was helping with the curricula. And um, then the, um, the group um, realized we need some angel investors. So they got angel investors, local people who'd come back from abroad, people who were running um, the um, uh, Accentures and the banks and so forth. And so individual Africans, we're not talking the billionaires, we're talking, you know, professionals, um, started this um, angel network back in, that was Afropreneurs. They, they established an, a formal entity that was a, a, the Afropreneur Angel Group Network. Um, and they started investing. So this was about um, 2011. And um, in the process, they, they kind of established two angel networks because they were going to have Lofty Angel, the Lofty Angel Fund, and that became the Lagos Angel Network because some um, municipalities were willing to put some money into it. The Lagos is very proactive um, and progressive with the tech uh, support. Anyway, so entity upon entity was built um, in this sort of food chain. The ecosystem was being built in Nigeria. So that by the time I was helping with the Silicon Valley um, African Angel Diaspora Group to form in um, an um, investor symposium, I was trying to find uh, the best speakers, for example. And um, one morning I wake up and see Mark Zuckerberg all over the news. <laughs> You remember when he was walking the streets of Lagos? Well, I remember he was like, I'm not going to sign up Andrew's wife five more times. Maybe I should try Lagos. Right? Like, if I've signed up all the Americans, I've got to buy WhatsApp and I've got to go to Africa. Like, that, that's what I understood. Well, he had hired some very astute people from, uh, from Africa that now we're in, in playing, you know, filling key roles in, um, in the Facebook meta um, uh, corporation. And um, one of them um, uh, put together this, this deal so that he invested in Andela. 
So I immediately reach out to my Nigerian friends, this Michael Alua for me, um, and say, can you guys help me get Mark Zuckerberg to speak at the Silicon Valley African diaspora thing? And within 10 minutes, I had, um, they'd been copied all these people and me as well. And, and Michael was saying, help Marsha get Mark speak to speak at this event. And on here were the names of all of the people who were listed in, this, in the Wall Street Journal article. <laughs> You know, and so Michael, how do you know all these people? Oh, they they invest through our angel group, and you know, we we actually were one of the first tickets that went into and we angel backed um, the um, Undella founders in the first place. We mentored this 19 year old before he ever you know launched a successful company and all this stuff. So I'm thinking, wow, this is so cool. If you guys are on a roll like this, and Silicon Valley's actually seen the the um, opportunity to invest at, at uh, angel and, and seed stage, um, let's launch a venture fund to carry this forward. Because I had been waiting for 20 years for a team that had that kind of deal flow, angel network, and, and now we've got Mark Zuckerberg, right? <laughs> so that's why I went to work to establish this angel fund, uh, not this venture capital fund, sorry, for seed stage. It's so tough. It took four years for us to raise a um, million dollars so we could invest in five tiny ventures. Um, and we ended up closing out that fund with a little over like 1.2 million and seven ventures. But <laughs> within, within, within two and a half years, we had already exited Flutterwave um with like 8x so it did a, it did a 3x return on the entire fund um and we started getting on people's map um so just a quick question uh because i'm in the pharmaceutical science space so i just cool. want to like um in Arthur, Africa, where are you from originally i'm from zimbabwe yeah. yeah so i'm from zimbabwe but i was staying in south africa for the past 10 years but yeah, so my question is, are you investing in any pharmaceutical companies in Africa? Absolutely. And like what is it? And then what kind of stuff do you look at when you invest into like a startup pharmaceutical company? That's okay, it. before I ever got involved in, in venture investing, I actually launched a, a pharmaceutical company because I was seeing that there's this gap in, in um, medicines for Africa between the um, the generics or the sub, um, what do you call it? Substandard um, local at that time where they were not, they weren't being inspected and so forth. Um, the fraudulent and in, coming in from Southeast Asia, right? Um, and, and then the, the imported um, that were too expensive. So what's the middle class supposed to buy, right? So I understand, I find, well, over time with patients from my PhD biochem <laughs> African friends that trained me, I, I realized where the gap was, but um, that, that didn't work for a number of reasons, but somebody else will get it done. Aspen has been doing it, for example. Marsha, right? yeah. do you have a statistic on the number of drugs being delivered to humans in Africa that are actually fake? It's it changes dramatically. Yeah, I do have some numbers, but um, but they 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 fluctuate dramatically based on the um, compliance. Um, for example, um, Nigeria, which was 
probably still is pretty high, 95% out of pocket pay, no insurance, right? Um, their, their drug level of, of um, fraudulent drug was, was huge. Like you said, just absolutely huge. But when Dorothy, the, the finance minister, lost her sister to, um, to fraudulent drug for some really critical malaria disease or, or, you know, or something like that. Then she went on a band, the, what do you call it? The bandwagon. She, um, she went on a campaign to clean that up. And she worked with my friend who was from Zimbabwe, working in DC um, with the um, US Pharmacopeia under the USAID to clean up those, um, those sources, uh, the manufacturers of the fraudulent drugs and the, the importers of the fraudulent drugs from Southeast Asia. Um, and they were shutting those down left, right, and center. And that got really down. That, that percentage went from like, like down to 16 or 4% or something like that. I've heard that it's been creeping back up again. But that is a, a really primary focus. But would you please tell me what your idea is? Um, um, what was your name again, Arthur? Arthur, yeah. So <clears throat> two different ideas. So first one being to get into like the generic drug uh, manufacturing space. Mm -hmm. And then uh, currently like my PhD is based on uh, designing drug delivery systems for cancer. So long term, oh. I plan on getting into like biological drugs. So between those two, would you advise towards you know, starting a generic drug company? What are your thoughts on that? You know, what I would say is whichever is your passion. And if you've got a network that you can, can adequately address it from either one of those positions, just go for it. We have invested in three biotechs in Africa in the last year. Okay. And thanks to COVID, um, a lot of it came out of the diagnostic side. But okay, so you know, you know, um, Gene Fifty Four in, um, in in Nigeria, right? Do you know what their business model is? No. Okay, so it's it's really pretty, um, pretty. Um, how can I say this? Uh, mm, pre very practical. So, uh, and and these are African, Black African founders for all three of these. Um, <coughs> Gene Fifty Four is focused on. Um, building the gene um, banks um, so that the protocols um, for the appropriate therapies can be applied to each of the um, established drug treatments, right? So that it can be appropriate for the, um, the personalized medicine. Okay, so that's, that's what they're doing. Um, then um, Yamachi, Yamachi in, in Ghana, that PhD is so good, and he's going to be he's going to be innovating a lot of um, oncology drugs eventually. Um, so you might have a good a good. I'm happy to introduce you to. Um, I'm sure he'd love to meet you, but he's collecting a real top notch team around him, like you, PhD um, in some advanced genetic things. Um, and but he's also starting in Ghana with with more of this, um, you know, very practical. We've got to build the databases. Um, um, and the guy in uh, Rocket Health in um, Uganda, he started with the um, testing, the, the um, rapid test delivery and high quality um, services and all that stuff. And he's going to town. So I'm happy to introduce you to those three. But I, I want you to do what you know 
needs to be done and that you know you can build a team to do and stay in touch with me and, and my colleague Idris Bello. He, um, Bilo, he got his um, master's at Oxford in public health, um, as well as being on the, uh, the tech side. And he, um, he and I collaborate on, on most of our, our biotech investments. So great, great to hear that that's your focus. There's so much to be done in that. Okay, thank you Arthur, so much. Arthur, I have a, I have a friend who started a, a generic drug manufacturing company and then contract manufacturing company in slovenia which sounds really small but the guy looks better off than anybody you'll know ever he's done extremely well with some vienna investors but uh, i um I, i'm sorry to interrupt um uh, andrew but the because of the energy problem in um, in Africa, that has to that has to get worked out, or else it adds can add easily forty percent to the cost of the generic drugs. So I I was um, planning to have mine manufactured initially in the FDA approved facilities in India that were um, you know only thirty percent of their capacity was being used. So because the, my goal was to get the high quality drugs at a low enough price for the middle class. So it depends on what your priority is, but you really have to be realistic about how much the electricity is gonna cost. Next. Okay. Thank you so much for the tips, I appreciate it. Certainly. Also, I would encourage people to ask uh, Marsha questions, not only about things that relate to Africa or Sub-Saharan Africa, but also uh, what it's like being a fundpreneur and just starting a fund, period. When you're 65. <laughs> Better late than never. You do not look 65, Marsha. No, I'm 70. <laughs> Last week, lots of flowers around here. <laughs> really? Amazing. Yeah. yeah. By the way, I was glad to see the, the women in your class. Um, although it may look like a paltry number, it's still higher than average <laughs> in, in the VC community. Yeah, you know, um, at this event that I'm at in uh, Florida right now, they're talking about uh, the percentage of women that are CEOs um, of um, Fortune okay. 50 or 500 companies. And it's just appallingly low. Um, the guys at Expert Mojo in LA say that the percentage of female African American CEOs that reach a Series A is at one percent of all uh, venture back uh, Series A's. Yeah, I just I don't I don't take time to be frustrated over that. I just ah. you know whenever I find uh, whenever I find one. <laughs> I, you know, I really encourage her and I, I back her and I introduce her and, you know, that's, let's put our energy into that. So we were discussing in our group of launching an ag tech CVC. So would you be able to tell us maybe a little bit about how to create synergy between a company and a corporate venture capital fund? maybe the kind that like Google makes with Google Ventures or something like that. 
because that's the idea that we'll be proposing in the following class with the ag tech uh, corporate venture capital fund. So you would have multiple corporations that you would be representing? Just the one. Okay, so what is it that you want to do if you've already got one? We don't have one. We're, it's an idea that we're going to be presenting in the following uh, class to the class. Oh, okay. So are you already working for that one corporation? No, it's just an idea. Like, and oh, we're well, that's the first step. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be so specific. I, I actually think that this is a great idea that that if to to build a new a new venture fund um, is so much easier if you've got one anchor like that. <clears throat> and especially in ag tech, it's you know you know it's it's tricky to find a technology that's going to be meaningful enough to be able to build an entire venture fund on. Um, so I, I, yeah, I highly recommend, um, there's someone that I'd, I'd recommend you talk with who, who built that in Africa, representing a, um, sort of a portfolio of corporations that were coming into Africa. Um, but what, why that didn't really work. I mean, it, it, they won't tell you that there are a lot of failures in Africa that nobody's learning from because they're too embarrassed to admit it. But um, it, when I've been at it this long, it, you start putting two and two together and say, whatever happened to that? And I didn't think it would work because, you know, um, but you, 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 you can't just impose that on the market or impose that on a, on a continent. Um, it, it, your, your idea, unless it's something they need that is, you know, grassroots coming up, when, so in this case, these large global ag corporations gathered together and they pushed out. So they would just have some initiative that they wanted. They, they wanted to grow more corn. They wanted to, you know, export their GMO wheat. They want to do this, that. And, and so they would, they would just put it out there and say, okay, if any of you um, African entrepreneurs want to do what we want, then we'll back you. But with a lot of strings attached and we're going to, oh yeah, by the way, we're going to just watch you like a hawk and govern everything. So, I mean, that wasn't gonna work because at, at the early stage, the entrepreneurs are the ones with the passion. The entrepreneurs are the ones who are spending all night up and, or like Elon Musk did under his, he slept under his desk. You know, you have to have, you have to work with the passions that are already there. So if you, you kind of, you go and you find out what they're passionate about and then try to match that up with a corporation, but that takes forever. So it's, it's tricky. The whole thing's tricky, but it all comes down to teams. If you can put together a team that's cross-functionally um, astute um, to solve a big problem, and you can bring it to somebody with deep pockets that cares deeply about that big problem, that's, that's gonna work. But I've been working remotely using all of the tools um, that were available as, as soon as they become available um, since 1997, 2000, yeah, 2002. Um, so none of this was new for our team. And as we, as we became a team, um, nobody moved to be able to go and sit in an office together and look eyeball to eyeball. Um, right. 
it's it, so all of us are entrepreneurs all of us are self-motivated we all just share the same passions um job creation tech-based innovation-based um african opportunities and matching the the you know financing with the the need um but it the covid um accelerated our uh, our entrepreneurs platforms like i mentioned with rocket health being able to just take off because of the the covid uh, diagnostic testing i don't know if you've noticed this but to me diagnostic testing is is going to be the driving force for where healthcare is going to go in the future um i just learned recently that our largest um chain of drug um companies are now um hosting um uh, diagnostic testing um first and then if you're positive then they will just send, give you the the drug that Pfizer's making or whatever that solves the problem that cures you of Makes your sense. covid or whatever right so it's not going to be it's it, it you see how that flips it sounds very innocent but it flips healthcare on on its head right instead of going to your doctor first and then going to your pharmacist um, it's the opposite. And that's actually more accepted in Africa. They already go to the chemist first and they only have to, they only go to the doctor or the hospital. I used to live in France. In France, you just go to the 24 hour green plus sign pharmacist mm -hmm. and the people that work in there know more than a doctor at Stanford University. Like you well, get really good they know different, from your they know different things. I, I've got an African at, uh, who's doing research top global research at stanford in ear infections um because water um you know if a kid goes in the water that's polluted it's gonna you know and then it takes forever to get rid of it so he's got some novel ways to solve that problem um so i'm not into bad mouthing um you know one university or another there's always good people everywhere <laughs> well, i'm so impolite and you're so polite um I, I think that um, the advent of the smartphone being there, yeah. like a great computer integrated at the home that can easily be tethered to some device that could yeah. then, you know, scan you or whatever, connected to the internet where there's telemedicine, that these three things, the Cray That's computer right. that is your smartphone, connected to a tetherable device that should be relatively low cost. So it's in the home without going to a thousand dollar per square foot emergency room. And then telemedicine, whether it's to the latest doctor to diagnose that in Zurich or the trained practitioner in Zimbabwe who can live like a king or a queen on a $50,000 a year salary while processing 40 diagnoses a, a week. You know, like these things to me are shocking that we're not delivering healthcare Right. In a better way. Okay, so but my God, you run in, you're just swimming against the the river. But no, not really. Government. That teledoc, that teledoc unicorn I mentioned earlier. Um, I headed the angel due diligence team in 2004, <coughs> and that um, it did take like forever. But you know, by it took 12 to 14 years for it to become a unicorn, um, and for me to get an exit. Um, but now, you know, it's everybody's real excited. But that was personal money, right? That was personal money. So, yeah, yeah, uh -huh, yeah. So there you go. TD. Yeah. So basically, the way our team has done it is we've made the um, the riskier investments 
our, ourselves per, personally first. We built our own companies. We did our angel investing. We made our mistakes. We, we got our hard knocks. Um, we learned our lessons and now we carry forward and we, we don't have any trouble deciding strategy because we figured it all out. Each on our own, we come together and it works. You know. Um, but back to, to COVID, um, some of the other lessons are just, uh, to me, I, I was just amazed that American economy got so um, bent out of shape into a pretzel over one, one life-threatening disease when Africans on a daily basis fa face at least four like this. So when my, my family and friends were saying, oh, how are all your poor Africans surviving this terrible thing? I'm saying, They've, they've been living with, with you know, malaria, TB, and that's drug resistant and, um, and typhoid and cholera all simultaneously um, forever. And now you know why their economies have been having trouble. Why don't we just solve some of these problems? Um, well, um, yeah. We have a question from Ali Chow. Ali, do you mind turning your camera on if it's okay? Or at a minimum, D Mike and ask your question to Marsha, please. Yeah. Oh, hi, Ellie. Aren't you cute? <laughs> I just asked, what is the best way to make connections in a foreign market? Friends, look around you at school. Do you know anybody from another country? I'm like Zimbabwe, maybe. <laughs> yeah, you've got to work from um, a base of personal knowledge and personal relationships. If you don't feel comfortable, if you don't know what you don't know, then you've got to have friends that you trust who care about you and you care about them um, to help you through, to be honest with you. Otherwise you'll make really expensive mistakes. <laughs> Good question though. Thank you. I I started with an NPR interview, um, or maybe it was BBC, of um, Dr. Mampele Rampele, who um, was a, in part of the resistance as a colleague of um, uh, Mandela <laughs> in South Africa. And she somehow got her PhD in, in um, what is it, the anth anthropology. And by the time she was being interviewed, it was post-apartheid, and she was the um, high, most highly ranked educator in the country. Um, she was over the University of Cape Town as vice chancellor. And um, so when our company did a joint venture in South Africa, I asked the, um, the, our joint venture partners if they knew her and some had sat on boards with her. So they introduced me on my next trip. And then she introduced me to her. We, we bonded over, you know, she challenged me to where else can you create history, change the world, you know, on a daily basis. And um, so she started introducing, she knew what I wanted to do. And she introduced me to her, um, her university's um, business school. They have a center of innovation and entrepreneurship at the University of Cape Town. And so um, I, you know, I got to know the founder there who was a um, retired biochem PhD um, who, who built a company, Ladies Hosiery, that got bought by Sarah Lee um, and it went public under that anyway. So, um, and so every time I'd go to, to South Africa, every six months, four months, I'd stay for two or three weeks and get introduced around. Every time I went down, I got a, a 
I've not only enlarged my network, but also elevated the quality and the caliber of the people with whom I was dealing. So I got to know all the private, um, uh, uh, for example, the, um, what do you call it, intellectual property attorneys, the um, VCs that were backing um, the uh, accelerators, um, the, the tech hubs, the innovation hubs. Um, you go to the engineering schools and get to know the tech transfer people. Um, if, if, so if, if, you know, startup and innovation is your, is your niche that really turns you on, you can, you know, that worked for me. Um, but getting, getting into the investors, oh my God, um, that was another, you know, decades of angel investing and they still didn't want to go into even the impact investors. They didn't want to go into Africa. Um, they didn't want to have to get on a plane and fly down for board meetings or whatever. It was, it was interesting. So you really, I think you, if you, the more you, you know your passion, the more you learn, the more passionate you become about your niche. And then you find others that share that passion. And then you start building something together. So our team has actually been together since 2009. But, but the, the advantage of diversity and, and Silicon Valley um, leaders are, are really aware of this. Um, I spoke on a diversity panel with all women um, at, at um, a French-based um, in innovation center called School Labs, Schoolhouse Labs, Schoolhouse Labs um, in Silicon Valley. And um, it was the most beautiful evening imaginable, real big crowd. But instead of letting the, um, the reporter um, get everybody all, you know, emotional and incensed and criticizing the guys and all that stuff. We just either either spoke from personal experience um, or we um, we spoke about research and it was the most enlightening thing. And all of the panelists like me were saying, you know, if a woman wants it has a passion and works hard, she gets people to follow her. And, um, and it, it, some of the research was wonderful. Um, this one gal works on, on that end of things. And we learned that, that it doesn't matter whether it's, it's all women or all men. If you don't have diversity on your, on your board uh, or your, your management team, you're going to make a lot more mistakes. You know why? Oh, because you're absolutely. so comfortable. Whoever comes up with an idea and everybody thinks alike, they all think, well, that's a great idea. Because they, haven't, they don't have a little kid, an old person, a black person, a Chinese person, a you know, African, to say, oh, but our in our culture, that brand name will be awful, <laughs> or, or you know, it, what about this problem that this demographic group faces, or you know, it's just so. So what happens is that when you know that you 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 you're going to have to face diverse opinions and hard questions, you prepare better, and you listen more. Because you have to, you have to work through those, and that makes your your prototype way better. It makes your market entry more successful. It makes your price and your, you know, everything's more embraceable. Because I was one of the few in in the, one of the first. Um, okay, Morgan Stanley bought out Dean Witter. I was one of the first women trained in Dean Witter. And um, they wanted me to go into management. And I was perfectly happy in a room full of 60 men, as long as the speaker didn't point out that I was different. Don't do that to me. I'm just one of the gang. I'm not better. I'm not worse. I'm just there. And it, it you know, if they're singled out, then it makes you feel more isolated. Um, so, you know, as if you're different. But, you know, Anyway, so my two cents worth.
So, so does that mean that we should invest in all women teams? No, you'll have the same dang problem, guys. <laughs> you just change it out. If they're all women, they're not going to be. I, I did. I invested in the first Texas all women venture capital fund, and it did miserable. <laughs> no, Americans think that they're better than they are. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I, I was surprised too when. Um, Okay, so we, like I said, we usually start with grassroots stuff and, and Idris and his wife, um, who are Nigerian, they are living in Cairo um, and raising their family there. Why? Because she had friends there and she wanted to go live there. Um, and it turns out Cairo is a wonderful place to invest. So anyway, um, Idris uh, has been learning Arabic and whatnot. And so he held it himself personally, he, um, he held a, um, uh, what do you call it, a competition for, um, uh, Arabic speaking uh, diaspora in the United States. I think this way it went. And so it was a big, um, a big uh, award thing. And, um, and the, the um, uh, judges, he wasn't on the judging panel, the judges, whatever. Turns out that at least 40% of the finalists were female. You know, they're wrapped up and <laughs> tied, <laughs> tied with a bow. And there they are. We've just been talking about friends and networks and those people who, who you're, you're, I'm sure you're referring to the old staid big names in Silicon Valley, where are their networks? They don't have, they don't have the networks to be investing in the, in the, the, the new and upcoming female um, entrepreneurs. They just yeah, don't have them. I have a quick question. Hi. Um, hi. I just wanted to ask, like, what gave you the background needed to be an investor? Like, did you study, like, did you take an MBA or did you study business at school? Yes, dear. Um, thank you for asking. Um, but I think that it depends on which, which um, asset class and which um, stage of growth you would like to invest in. Um, and it, it would take a different background for each. I've got, I've got a little bit of everything where um, I uh, uh, helped build my own little businesses. You know, I, I made clothes. I seems, I seems just, that's how I paid for my first year of college. Um, and then I made furniture, <laughs> built a furniture, but then we built a sign business. And I started realizing these sole proprietorships had limited growth opportunities because they just couldn't scale well. So <clears throat> um, then I, um, I did get trained as an investment broker um, so that I could learn how to um, manage portfolios and, um, and how to understand returns and you know, bonds versus stocks and, and private equity investing and all that stuff. And then I helped build a company from midsize to being um, a, a, a unicorn, um, uh, going public and um, being multiple countries. I, you know, I helped open offices in Africa. <laughs> um, so, and so you get to learn, you know, a little bit about everything if you live as long as I do. <laughs> eventually, um, and then um, you start deciding what you prefer yourself to really focus on. So on the side, I was doing the angel investing with other friends and organizations that shared my values. And um, I'd have to fly to East Coast or West Coast when I was living in Texas because nobody in Texas was doing it. Um, but you, you know, just keep 
basically follow your passions. Just if you're curious about something, I had no idea why I was curious about what venture capital was, but I was so excited the first time I met somebody who was doing it. And he happened to be a board member and he took me under his wing and he introduced me to somebody from EY who could teach me. And uh, so I just helped that EY guy do some um, calling to find out the stores that were buying the the clothing that this company was making that he wanted to invest in. So I learned how to do due diligence that way. You know, you, you learn you learn from somebody else who's doing it. Um, it just, you know, you, you probably can think of people that you know who are doing something like what you want to do. Learn from them and then tell them, I'm interested in this related thing. Could you introduce me to somebody that you would trust to tutor me in that so I could learn, I can help them. I'll do whatever they tell me to do and I'll learn from that. And, you know, most of the time you'll just say, oh, that wasn't much fun, but I learned this. And later in life, you'll figure out how to plug it into what you do love. Um, so from just of uh, having seen a lot of founders and successful ventures, what do you think is a good strategy for picking a co-founder? Make sure that they think differently than you do but that they care about the same thing you care about accomplishing. That's pretty much it. Okay, I, I'll tell you something. I spent, uh, um, when I went to uh, Y Combinator and um, I was at a side event and some, uh, I met a uh, African entrepreneur who was launching a, tech, a health tech venture. And um, <clears throat> I, I decided very early on to that I wanted to invest, but of course I had partners that didn't hadn't met them and were more reserved about it. But I spent the weekend with them here. They came to Carmel, we hiked, we, we um, you know, petted the, you know, animals and um, did stuff together. And I, I listened to the way that the, their team interacted, the CEO, the COO and the CTO, and um, they challenged each other, um, and they laughed together, and they um, dreamed together, and they argued with each other. Um, but they never lost. They they were never disrespectful to each other. Um, but you could tell that they were they were honing the strategy and the processes and procedures. For their company, and so I went. In, I went for it, even though my my absolutely star performing, um, we'd call them stock pickers in the, in the public market. Um, he wasn't so sure about this, um, so he made me negotiate a really low valuation of three point five million if we came in pre pre de, uh, demo day, which we did. And that company now is the most valuable health tech company on the continent. They've just, um, they um, did a stealth A round. Um, so nobody knew, maybe a B round too. They, nobody knew that they were doing this well. Um, that's now called Reliance HMO. When they were at Y Combinator, it was Kangpei. And, um, um, and now Idris uh, tips his hat for me um, saying that, you know, he, if I dig my heels in, he'll back me now. <laughs> But the point is that, that watching how that team 
work together would be a, give you a good example of what you're going to want to look for in your co-founder. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. Thank you. I think the important thing is to sh have shared values. We want to make a difference in healthcare by, you know, making it timely, you know, low cost, higher quality, um, uh, easier to, I mean, they started when nobody had insurance, health insurance, hardly. And, and that's because the, you had to pay a, a year's worth in advance. And there's no appointments for the doctor. You have to just go and spend the whole day waiting. And they've changed both of those things already in Nigeria. Um, we, we wanted to, we invest, yeah, when we, we are diversifying this next fund, it'll be probably about 60 companies in the 16, okay. with so 16 60 million. companies, equal, <laughs> somewhat equal shots, or do you double down in your winners? No, we double down on the winners. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What percentage of the fund is doubling down? A third. A third. Okay. That's a standard. Well, actually, that would be like tripling down. Because if first check, you know, it, it may be a, for this fund, for the prior fund, the first check was 50. For this fund, the first check, the lowest checks we've written have been uh, about 100. Um, so doubling is, is still only 200. Um, and we plan to get up to like 2 million in the winners, right? Um, so the way that our model works out, I mean, we've built models a, a lot and, um, and I agree, people don't think that we can do this much investing, but we can. It all has to do with what your priorities are and what your, your ego is. I mean, we don't think that we know more than the entrepreneurs. But if we don't trust the entrepreneurs to know more than us, we don't invest. So it's kind of this dance. And with that, I'd like to give a big thanks to Marsha Wolf. Thanks so much and see you next time.